You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. So we're, we're in Matthew 21, and we Clayton just read for us this text where Jesus goes into the temple, he gets upset, he throws tables over, um, he heals some people, he goes out of town, he comes back, he yells at a tree and it dies, and then he says some really weird stuff to his disciples. But before we jump into all of that, we have to know where are we in in the story in Matthew. So if you were here last week, uh, we were at the end of Matthew chapter 20, and what we saw was Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem to celebrate the week of Passover. And on his way, he healed some blind men and showed his lordship, Um, and, and it said a lot about his faithfulness to save It said a lot about the inclusion of outsiders into this new community and this new kingdom he's establishing. But where we are now is is after that, he goes into Jerusalem and he makes this what we call now the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And and he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey and people are throwing leaves down before him and they're worshiping him. They're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, the son of David. And they're crying out these these songs and shouts of praise to Jesus. And so then the first thing that Matthew says Jesus does after this entry into Jerusalem is he goes to the temple. And the temple is not only the cultural center of the city of Jerusalem, but it's the cultural center for all the nation of Israel and anyone who would believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he goes there, and what we read in verse 12 is that it says, and Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. So, so Jesus goes into the temple and he doesn't just go in to make kind of a political appearance of I'm here, I'm the son of David, welcome to Passover week. He comes in and he stirs up trouble. He's throwing over tables. The gospel account in John would say that he has a whip of cords and he's He's chasing people around with a whip out of the outer courts of the temple, people who are selling livestock. Um, And and this could seem really strange as to why is Jesus doing this. And so we have to understand culturally what's happening. And what's happening is that these people who are selling pigeons and these money changers, they're gathering in the outer courts of the temple. And this is the part of the temple that, that uh, that only was available to Gentiles. Um, because Jewish women could go into the next part of the court, and Jewish men could go into the next part of the court, and then priests could go into the next part of the court, and then a high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies. But this is in the very outside of the temple grounds where Gentile converts to Judaism could come and worship and pray. And, and so we, we have stories in the gospel of Jesus um, speaking to an Ethiopian eunuch at the temple. So sometimes people are traveling from thousands of miles away to come and worship their new God, the God of Israel. And they arrive at the temple to find that the place where they could worship and pray has been turned into a marketplace and a bazaar. And so people are selling livestock to be offered as sacrifice. And in the selling of pigeons, pigeons are used as a replacement sacrifice for those who are without the financial means to obtain Uh, larger animals to sacrifice, bulls and goats. And and so they're selling them on the grounds, which indicates that in some way they're probably financially taking advantage of the needy. 
They're hiking up prices there on the temple grounds for the purpose of, of greed and self-interest. And in that, what they're doing is they're excluding the Gentiles and the outcasts from being able to worship and pray. In verse 13, Jesus says, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And so to understand what Jesus is saying here, um, on the surface level, we can understand that Jesus is upset that what is happening at the temple isn't what's supposed to be happening. Jesus says, this is supposed to be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. But Jesus' language here is specific. He's referring to the prophecies of Isaiah in Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah in Jeremiah 7. In Isaiah 56, this is a text about salvation for foreigners, so specifically Gentile inclusion into the kingdom of God. And it's about that coming forth. And in verse 7 of Isaiah 56, the Lord refers to his temple through the prophet Isaiah as a house of prayer. In the latter passage in Jeremiah 7, this is a passage about the evil hypocrisy that will take over temple worship and, and, and the evil hypocrisy of the people of Israel, um, all sorts of sin and idolatry. And, and it goes on and on about the hypocrisy of the people of Israel and the presumption that they have on God's grace simply because they are Israelites and they go to the temple. And that text calls the temple a den of robbers. And it ends with God's house being reduced to ruins and his people being cast out of it. It says in Jeremiah 7, Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say we are delivered only to go on doing these abominations. So Jesus comes to the temple, he's throwing over tables, he's kicking people out, and he's angry about the rejection of the outsider, the Gentile and the needy, taking advantage of the poor and rejecting the Gentile from worshiping and prayer. And in verse 14, it says that he heals the blind and the lame that came to him in the temple. He heals the blind and the lame that came into the temple. So Jesus then uses the very place that has been rejecting the needy, rejecting the outcast, to have them come to him and receive healing. And this makes the religious authorities upset in verse 15. Because when Jesus starts doing this, children start crying out shouts of praise to Jesus. And the, the temple authorities are upset. This is blasphemy. That anyone would receive praise other than the Lord God, and especially on the temple ground. And so they ask him, what, what, what is going on here? Do you understand what people are saying? And Jesus knows exactly what's going on. And in verse 16, he says, yes. Have you never read, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? And so what Jesus does is he quotes Psalm 8, which is this beautiful psalm where David is praising the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, and he likens this praise to himself. And so he's saying that in the temple that the praise due him is, also, is the exact same praise that is due the God of Israel because he's claiming that he is indeed the God that was being worshipped in Psalm 8. 
And then verse 17, this is kind of the bridge of the text. It says, and leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. And so it says, and leaving, he went out. And so Matthew is using uh, the word exit here twice to show the emphatic way in which Jesus is rejecting this temple and, and everything that's going on. He, he leaves and then he goes out. Right? So it's saying Jesus left in every way possible, and he didn't even sleep in Jerusalem that night. He went to Bethany to sleep. And so that's a text that in and of itself shows Jesus in a character that, that maybe we haven't yet fully seen him revealed in this gospel. But in verse 18, the text gets even stranger. It says, in the morning, he was returning to the city, and he became hungry. He became hungry, so Matthew is showing Jesus fullness of humanity as Jesus has hunger in the morning for breakfast. And it says, And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. So so Jesus sees a tree that looks like it would have fruit. It has leaves. It looks like a fig tree, um, but it has no fruit for him. And so he says, May no fruit ever come from you again. So he yells at this tree, may no fruit ever come from you again. He curses this fig tree to never bear fruit again. So in one verse, he's hungry, showing his humanity. In the next verse, by the word of his power, he's seeing a tree be killed, showing his power over creation. Because he's the God who created the tree with the very word, so he can end it with the very word. And then in verse 21 and 22, he says these things to the disciples that can be taken largely out of context about a doubtless faith that will allow them to do great things and and prayers that will have to be answered if they have faith. And we'll get back to that, but what this isn't is Jesus giving a message on the power of positive thinking and, and willing things to be in and of themselves out of your own power. So we'll get back to that, but this is not like if I, can, if I believe I can fly enough, then I can fly. That's not what Jesus is saying. And Jesus isn't saying that like this is 12 steps to a better life, uh, but it is this call to a doubtless faith that will lead to something miraculous happening. And so really, I think this text is divided into three key um, kind of themes or points. And the first is this theme of Jesus condemning the fruitless. We see this first in the temple. Jesus' outburst in the temple was not simply a frustration with the hypocrisy and the commercialism that has occurred in the place of worship. But that's certainly part of it. Ultimately, Jesus reveals that he is not just upset with the sins of greed, the exclusion of outsiders and the like, But he also says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. This indicates that he is mostly frustrated that the temple has the appearance of holiness, but is not producing the fruit of prayer and worship and heralding the goodness of God and righteousness the way that it's supposed to be. It's not just a frustration with sin. It's a frustration with the lack of fruit yielded from righteousness. The temple and the activities therein are no longer centered on the things of God. But they've rather been turned into things of greed, of selfishness, and the presumption on God's grace. That's the Jeremiah 7 passage 
where, where it says you would, you would do all of these things and then you would come to me and say, we're delivered. Right? Like because, God has, because of God's grace, we're delivered and we can go on doing whatever we want. This is presumption on God's grace and the New Testament would have a lot of warnings against those of us who would think we're safe with that sort of mindset. And so these people are coming to the temple expecting to please God and receive his favor as his covenant people, yet their lives reflect that they are far from a God-centeredness. And then we see Jesus' frustration with fruitlessness also in the fig tree. Jesus condemns the fig tree for its lack of fruit, not just because he was angry or not just because he was hungry. He was frustrated because though it has leaves and the appearance of health, it's worthless tree that doesn't do its job. It's only a tree on the surface level basis of having leaves and branches and roots. And a casual passerby would, would say that it's a fig tree. But Jesus knows that this is not a fig tree at all in function because fig trees produce figs. This is not just an unrelated outburst of hunger pains from Jesus either. This is a commentary on the temple. That's why, that's why Jesus did this directly after he cursed the temple. He curses the fig tree for its lack of fruit as a commentary on the fruitless temple. Jesus is teaching his disciples that the fig tree is like the temple, and he is proclaiming that neither one bear the fruit that they are supposed to. And he proclaims that they never will again. He says, may no fruit ever come from you again. Because the temple may look like a house of prayer and worship. It may look like a place to have sins forgiven through sacrifice. It may look like a place where true God-honoring religion is practiced. But it is thus no longer. And it never will be again. Understanding that Jesus condemning the, the temple through the tree is important. Jesus is making the point that the temple's inefficacy to facilitate fruitful acts of prayer, faith, and inclusion of the Gentiles call for it to be ruled out altogether as the dwelling place of God. There must be a new and better temple that facilitates these things that the old temple is lacking. The second theme that we see in this text is Jesus providing fruitfulness in the stead of fruitlessness. So all throughout the Gospel of Matthew, we see Jesus teaching that the fruitfulness of good religion or following him and the destruction of sin are evidenced in speech, behavior, and lifestyle. So, so Matthew's Gospel is clear that, that Jesus is teaching that, that a faithful lifestyle must produce good fruit. He doesn't just proclaim a gospel of good works, though. Matthew's account of Jesus has many of Jesus' teachings in which he teaches that what comes out of a person is a result of what is inside. Matthew 15, 18, Jesus says that the mouth speaks what the heart believes. In the Sermon on the Mount, in chapters 5 through 7, Jesus goes through the law and teaching that the law is to be obeyed not just in actions, but in the heart and the mind as well. And even before this account with the fig tree, Jesus taught in chapter 12 that a tree is known by its fruit. So Matthew's gospel has this thematic point 
also of the outcast being included. We see this as he heals the blind and the lame and as he rejects the Pharisees for their rejection of the blind and the lame and the Gentile. The acts of justice, mercy, and evangelical inclusion of all people into the kingdom is a key theme in Jesus' teaching in Matthew. And that's simply because these are the very things that Jesus is doing himself in the Gospel of Matthew. And so it should serve us as no surprise that after Jesus condemns the activities of the temple, after he flips over tables and drives people out for greed and exclusion, that he would respond with an act of mercy toward the outcast as he heals the blind and the lame in the temple. Jesus is not simply healing the blind and the lame. He is putting on display the very things that the temple lacked. True faith, prayer, worship. The things that those things lead to are the fruits that Jesus yields in the healing of the blind and the lame. He's providing a seminar on fruitfulness for the people that so desperately needed it while he heals and includes the very kinds of people that those in the temple sought to exclude. And Jesus didn't just put on a clinic of how to be merciful toward the social reject, but he also received worship in the temple. And this is a big deal. This is a big deal, and the religious elites didn't go without noticing that this is a big deal. The temple was the dwelling place of the presence of God. And to worship a troublemaking prophet was blasphemy to begin with, but to do so on the temple grounds was even more profane. So when they questioned Jesus, asking him if he realizes what exactly is taking place, he didn't respond by saying, oh, these children who are doing it, they don't know what they do, just leave it be. Or he didn't say, sorry, I'll get out of your hair. No, he, he quotes the Psalm of David that talks about God being praised by young people while he's being praised by young people. Jesus is claiming not only is this a fulfillment of prophecy, but that he is the God of the universe worthy of being praised. Jesus is saying, this temple where you think God dwells isn't producing fruit, but I am producing fruit because I am the dwelling place of God. So when Jesus curses the temple through the fig tree the next day, he's saying that the temple is no longer producing fruitful worship and it never will again. He's showing his disciples that what they witnessed at the temple the day before was a picture of the new temple to come in God's people as they worship Christ as Lord, who dwells not only in the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem, but also in the hearts of his believers wherever they are. And so alongside the right worship of Christ's followers, Christ will in power give sight to the spiritually blind and lame as his good news is proclaimed in all the earth, not just in Jerusalem. And the third theme in this text, or the third part of this text that we have to walk through is Jesus' words to the disciples in verses 21 and 22. And, and this is no doubt the most challenging part of the text. Jesus has cursed this fig tree, and in verse 20 we see that the disciples are amazed that this has happened. And Matthew notes that 
that Jesus' words caused the tree to wither, not only because that's a historical reality that Jesus' words caused the tree to wither, but Matthew notes that because it shows Jesus as the creator God who has power over creation with the words of his mouth. But, but that's just for free. Um, in verse 21 and 22, what he says to the disciples is challenging. It's challenging not only uh, because of what Jesus is calling his disciples to, but because of, of the way in which he says it, it's confusing. He says, truly I say to you, so anytime in the Gospel of Matthew when Jesus says, truly I say to you, this is kind of a key in, I'm saying something very important. And so Jesus says, pay attention. If you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. So Jesus talks about this doubtless faith and faithful prayer that lead to these amazing things. He tells them that if they have doubtless faith, then they will not only do what Jesus has done to the tree, which was to pronounce the inability of the temple to produce faith, which leads to righteousness, worship, and fruit, but that they will also be able to command this mountain to be tossed into the sea. And the portion where Jesus says, and do not doubt, after he says, have faith, this is a part that I think can really hang us up. Um, but it doesn't need to. Jesus isn't calling the people to have an unwavering obedience and faith at all times. But rather he is calling them to at all times put all of their hope in him and believe that he truly is the messianic king he has shown himself to be. Paul talked about this a few weeks ago in the account where Peter's walking on water. Where, where Peter's faith is it's not that he ever doubted that Jesus was who he said he was. It's just that at one time he took his sight off of it. And so Jesus is saying all the time, believe I am who I say I am. They aren't required to have large amounts of faith at all times. Jesus isn't saying, if you have the most faith, then you can do these things. Because a few chapters later, he taught that faith the side of a mustard seed would also move the mountain. And so Jesus can't be calling us to this really large amount of faith. The power or size of faith isn't the barometer, but rather the object of faith is. He's not calling the disciples to put this doubtless faith in the fruits to come. He isn't saying, if you really believe the mountain will move, it will move. He's saying, if you really believe I have power to move the mountain, it will move. He's calling them to put doubtless faith in his revealed perfection, in his revealed deity, kingship, and power to be the active agent in the production of the fruit of their faith. When he says, whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith, that's the second place where we can really get hung up um, because it, it makes it sound like we can pray for whatever we want and God's going to give us whatever we want and then we can theologically reduce God to a magic genie that if we just rub him enough, then we'll get whatever we want. Um, and, and there are people in our city who not only commercialize worship but also teach that that's the way God is. And if we believe that teaching, we will be sorely mistaken. 
So when Jesus says, if you, have, if you ask in prayer, you will receive, if you have faith, we have to remember how Jesus taught his disciples to pray in Matthew chapter 6. They were to ask for God's kingdom and will to come and to be accomplished, not their own will or kingdom. They were to ask for sustenance, not wealth, power, or status. They were to ask for forgiveness from sin and help against temptation by the power of the Spirit, not by the power of their own will. So faithfulness in prayer is to ask God to do what God does and to believe that He can in bringing about His kingdom purposes and providing for His people physically basic needs and spiritually in dealing with sin. And all of this involves the action the agent of action being our Lord Jesus. None of it is about us being the active agent in change. So with those hang-ups out of the way, what do we do with this idea of Jesus telling this mountain to be tossed into this sea? Or into the sea? First, we have to note that Jesus says this mountain. He doesn't say a mountain or a lot of mountains or any old mountain or a mountain somewhere else, but he says this mountain. Jesus is using a definite article on purpose because he's talking about a specific mountain. And, And to understand this, we have to know what the Old Testament says about mountains and how it uses mountains and symbolism. In the Old Testament, mountains are the place from which God makes decrees from where his glory is revealed, and these are also places where events of spiritual significance take place. In the prophets, mountains being moved and leveled is often an imagery to the nearly impossible way in which God's kingdom will advance when the messianic kingdom arrives. And Jesus was talking about a specific mountain. And given his location being in Jerusalem on the way to the temple, it could have been one of two things. He could have been talking about the mountain, Mount of Olives, which resides over Jerusalem. But I think the text would imply that it's more likely that he is referring to the physical temple. The Mount of Zion, if you will. And, and I think given that context of the text and what Jesus has been doing in condemning the fig tree as the temple, uh, that that's probably the most faithful way to translate it. But either way, if he's talking about the Mount of Olives, which resides over Jerusalem, or the temple itself, really what Jesus is saying doesn't change. And so if the mount, this mountain that the disciples are going to move into the sea, that they're going to throw into the sea, is is religion that is held in Jerusalem, the presence of God dwelling in Jerusalem. Are, are they to really take the temple and throw it into the sea and watch it sink below the water? No, if, if this mountain is symbolism, then it is safe to say that the sea is as well. And in Jewish literature, the sea referred to both situations of chaos and turmoil And it also referred to the nations abroad. So outside of God's kingdom in Israel, the seas referred to the outside world where chaos and paganism and idolatry was. And so Jesus was telling the disciples that if they have faith in him, then he will make his presence, which is the true presence of God that dwells in the temple, that he will make this go forth into the chaos of foreign nations 
No more would the temple be a building built by human hands where people could come and be near the presence of God, but rather God would dwell among his people who will be his new temple. And those people will go into the chaos of the world of outsiders and make them to become insiders. So what are we to do with all of this? What are we to do with all of this? First, we have to look at the text and see what made Jesus angry in the text. Um, C.S. Lewis always said that the warnings in the Bible are important because they're like roadblocks on the road to hell. And so we have to look at the warnings. What made Jesus angry? Fruitlessness, greed, and the exclusion of outsiders primarily make Jesus angry in this text. The commercialism of worship, the lack of faithful prayer, these are things that made Jesus angry in the text. The buyers and sellers in the temple were driven by greed and self-interest as they sought to make profit. They took advantage not only of other people, but of the very things and systems of God to serve themselves. Moreover, they presumed upon the grace of God, expecting to be favored and forgiven simply by their being part of the temple activities. But remember the words of Jeremiah when he says, will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal which, and other gods that you have known, and then come before me in this house which is called by my name and say, we are delivered only to go on doing these abominations. These people thought that it was okay to use the temple to serve themselves without realizing that the temple was a place in which they were to serve others and to serve the living God. The people of Israel, through their hypocrisy, were not yielding the fruit of good works, which comes from faith in the God of Israel. And in chapter 12, Jesus says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make a tree bad and its fruit bad, for a tree is known by its fruit. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. That's what Jesus says. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. So Jesus cleansed the temple of evil and provided an example of fruitfulness and God's salvation as he healed the blind and the lame. But Jesus didn't just provide an example of fruitfulness. He has given fruitfulness to all who would trust in him as a free gift. Jesus is the good treasure that brings forth good in good people. The goodness that produces the fruits of righteousness is not the result of making a decision to be just or merciful. If it were, then Jesus would not have needed to die, and he wouldn't have even been in Jerusalem that week. Jesus isn't calling people to the power of positive thinking, as we said before. He's calling them to the power of his very nature. The people need a fruitfulness outside of what they could provide on their own, or what the temple's rituals could provide for them. If you want more on that, read the the epistle to the Hebrews, which is all about how Jesus is superior to the sacrificial system. So when he cured the physical temple in, cursed the physical temple in Jerusalem, he followed through by replacing a system that didn't yield fruit with his death. Jesus bore perfect fruit in his life. 
and now has provided that to his people. Though he cursed the fig tree representing the fruitless temple, he became fruitless and cursed on a tree as he provided fruitfulness for his people later that week in his death on the cross. So we are not unfairly called to bear fruit that we can't accomplish. Jesus isn't calling us to be a people of prayer, justice, and mercy without giving us the ability to carry that out. He's already accomplished it for us, and even more, he's given us his very spirit to dwell within us so that we can be the true temple of God and the true dwelling place of his presence and the true producers of good fruit. Why? So that this mountain may be thrown into the sea, so that into the chaos of the world around us, where sin dwells, where idolatry dwells, where selfishness abounds, and where people are excluded based on their station in life, that we can go forth with this gospel message that not only can, can Jesus and his good nature provide for you sustenance, but he can provide for you forgiveness of sins, life that is powered by his resurrection, and inclusion into a kingdom which will never be shaken. This text isn't about people just being a people of prayer, though we're a people who should pray. And it isn't just about Jesus condemning the temple and the inability of of a broken religious system to provide a salvation from sin or inclusion to outsiders. It is about a God who through Jesus has lovingly provided for us this system of free grace that saves and a faith that will bring about prayer and a God who will make fruitfulness out of that faith and out of that prayer. We will be a fruitful vessel of holiness as the new temple of God and as the new dwelling place of our Lord Jesus. So let us take this good news. Let us take it to the chaotic seas of the outside world so that others can experience the radical and transforming power of our Savior, Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, you're worthy of our worship. You're worthy of our worship because you have provided for us what we couldn't provide on our own. You've provided for us not only an example of good works and fruitfulness, an example of justice and mercy, but you've provided for us the very power to carry it out. And you've not called us to earn our salvation, our right standing before you based on those fruits, but rather to walk as those who have been deemed righteous by your goodness, by your holiness, and walk in light of that. Lord, I pray that we would be a people not only marked by fruitful labor, based in our faith in you, but we would be a people who would take the good news that you've provided that for us to the chaos of the world around. That they would taste and see that you are good and that Montrose and Houston and eventually all of the surrounding areas would cry out to you, Hosanna in the highest. Save us, son of David. Lord, make us a faithful dwelling place for your presence. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.